Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Greetings from the Hill Country of Central Texas. This is Revolution in Military Affairs, and I'm your host, Amos Fox. On today's episode, we have Dr. Heather Venerable, Professor of Security Studies at the Air Command and Staff College, and she's a managing editor for the Strategy Bridge. Heather's one of the few people out there that's willing to speak out about established ideas in military thinking, such as maneuver warfare, among others, and really poke provocatively, but also thoughtfully, and logically applying applying process tracing type thinking to understanding whether or not these concepts make sense or not. So really excited for you all to hear this conversation with Heather. Uh, it was a terrific conversation, wide-ranging, and uh, we tried to really dig deep into the idea of maneuver warfare and some of the other ideas that are permeating through Western military thinking today. Something that I think that's overlooked in this discussion, and I pointed out later in the conversation, is that ideas like maneuver warfare or... Um, you know, principles of war, ideas like that. There's several others that are out there that have been around for a long time. Uh, they're not owned by one institution, organization, uh, large conglomerate of institutions. Ideas like that belong to the world, and therefore it's for any of us, they're for any of us to interact with in a critical way to try and get to the truth and understand them better and make more sense of them. And there's this quickness to run and hide behind a specific doctrine or a specific organization's doctrine and say this argument doesn't align with that doctrine and therefore it isn't valid. Um, but again, this the point of this conversation isn't to justify which doctrine is correct or incorrect, but to argue about the idea itself and the ideas themselves. And so just take that with you as we begin this conversation. Uh, we're not interested in validating a doctrine. Uh, regardless of whose doctrine that may or may not be. We're not interested in examining 
uh, doctrine and detail as it relates to the concept of maneuver warfare. We're discussing the idea in general. It's worldly. It belongs to the world. It belongs to you. It belongs to me. It belongs to anybody. Um, but it doesn't belong to an institution. Their version of that doctrine, their version of that idea, articulated within their doctrine, is just their institutionally uh, directed version of that idea, and it is not sacrosanct, nor is it the end-all, be-all. So, again, just uh, take that with take that with you as we begin this journey. And uh, one more thing before we get going, I just wanted to give a shout out to my friend uh, Tim Chung. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. And uh, the feedback that you've given me along the way uh, with this podcast has been very, very helpful. So Tim, thank you very much. And I appreciate your listenership and your friendship. All right. So today we have uh, Heather Venables. Did I say your last name correctly? Again, uh, Southern Indiana. I tend to butcher names that aren't very simple. Uh, And it's hard to say my own name uh, sometimes. Uh, just because of that too but nonetheless all right so heather is a professor of security studies at the air command and staff college as well as a managing editor at the strategy bridge a big fan of the strategy bridge by the way i've published several things there over the years a couple this past year in fact um so i really appreciate the work that uh, you guys do which is part of the reason i try and publish there periodically um but anyhow, um, so today we're going to talk about a very um, a very easygoing topic that doesn't tend to get a lot of people riled up. We're going to talk about maneuver. Uh, Heather is is firmly in the uh, the uh, the camp of the maneuverist, and so we're gonna we're gonna let her talk about the great uh, virtues of of maneuver. But with that, Heather, I just wanted to say thanks, and uh, I, I'm being tongue in cheek for those who can't see us giggling to ourselves here. Uh, but which is everybody. Uh, but Heather, just thank you for coming on. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm, you know, we've never talked before. We've just communicated via email and you're kind of like, I feel like you're my intellectual brother. So <laughs> I was really excited to get this opportunity. Also, just a standard disclaimer, I'm a government employee. What I say doesn't represent DOD or the Air Force. Got a couple of uh, questions that I'd like to ask you based off uh, the things that you've written and spoken about about Maneuver over the past couple of years. Uh, the first is, the maneuver discussions picked up significantly since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. A small number of us, to include both you and I and a couple of other folks, have been uh, critical of the concept, and not critical in a negative way, but critical in an intellectual way of the concept for several years prior to that, uh, uh, the initiation of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, so what was your initial position on maneuver warfare prior to the invasion? And uh, how has that evolved um, from then to today? Well, my initial position was that it's an idea that is great in theory. And certainly warfare is more than just the physical. So the idea of wanting to shatter an enemy's cohesion through speed or deception or surprise is great um, in theory. But I don't think that there are as many historical examples to show that it is the main overriding characterization of war. And so my, my ideas really haven't changed um, much since then. But what I think has changed is when I've looked deeper into army doctrine and um, multi-domain operations, I think that multi-domain operations is, you know, the second maneuver warfare light. And so we're actually going in the wrong direction because our ideas are getting watered down even more 
And so we just have a lot of terms that become thrown around and are kind of synonyms for each other and mean the same thing. And so we're not really, we're just adding layers of calcification without really making our ideas stronger. Yeah, the point on doctrine is an interesting one because for me personally, as I've always looked at this, I, I'm a firm believer and a big fan of uh, the utility of, of theory, right? Military theory. And so certain ideas, they belong to the universe, right? They don't belong to, like, it's not the proprietary ownership, you know, uh, ownership of DOD or any other, you know, I'm using that as an example, but any other, you know, military. These ideas exist for, you know, the world to hammer away on and to refine and to make better and to throw away parts when they're no longer useful. And I think maneuver is one of those ideas. There's certain ideas that are just bigger than any military or their doctrine. And so uh, one of the criticisms, uh, and this goes to the, some of the questions I said I may sprinkle in as we get as we work through this, some of the questions or some of the criticisms that I've seen about the criticisms of maneuver is that the people that are criticizing it just don't know doctrine well enough. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think that if you know doctrine really well, I don't know that that's actually going to make you a better um, thinker because, again, I would refer to the calcification. One thing that I saw in doctrine was when I was looking to incorporate an activity for students to think about here about measures of effectiveness, I found something in the 2011 JP50 which had more of a coin focus, but it did give some concrete examples of measures of effectiveness. In the two, 2020 update, those had been removed because of strategic competition, but no concrete examples had been replaced to provide an example, a good, a solid um, explanation of measures of effectiveness or how to think about them. But yet the section that was in had been expanded by about five pages. So the problem with doctrine by committee, which is in some ways how it is made, is that it doesn't, it just satisfies, it's the, the trophy, participation trophy. Yeah, that's right. It's got to, you've got to go, you've got to get the graybeards to bless off on it. Then you've got to work it through all the, uh, all the, I don't want to say strap hangers because that paints them in a negative light, but all the plug-in people that have uh, contextual touches with, with the ideas. And you're right, it really does, uh, I think in many cases, as it works through the approval process, there may have been a, you know, a gym at the beginning, and by the end, it's, I don't know what a gym could get <laughs> devolved down into, but, you know, all the nuance and beauty of it gets rubbed away, and you get this very vanilla generic thing that doesn't really say anything, and then we wonder why we see all these, you know, just strings of buzzwords thrown together that don't really say anything. Yeah, so there was another point on that that I think is worth uh, worth calling forward, the debate between... Um, maneuver and attrition and maneuver and positional warfare and and uh, where it fits together with all with with all three of those um, one of the things that I saw recently said that like that that argument or that discussion maneuver versus attrition isn't helpful and I, I I think to a degree like it's it's not a this or that it's they all work together in unison in some ver or in a uh, in, in varying degrees but that also goes back to the discussion of doctrine. If you go look at our doctrine, if you go look at any Western military's doctrine for the most part, you don't see the discussions of things like this, right? Maneuver is the thing, especially as you look at friends in other parts of the world, their doctrine, maneuver plays an even bigger role with things like the maneuverist approach and all that being centered to everything they do. And so there's this, this, uh, 
let's focus on that in the absence of these other forms of war fighting or other uh, characterizations of the environment. And I think that that does a disservice because then when you actually have to go into these things, you've selectively not talked about them in your doctrine. So then when you go into those environments, you're like, holy cow, what's going on here? It's like urban warfare, right? There's a lot of stuff that goes into urban warfare that's completely overlooked, right? Sieges for one, right? We don't do sieges. You know, Western militaries don't do sieges. Eh, You know, yeah, you do. But it's not in doctrine and things like that. Same thing with proxy wars, right? That's not in doctrine. And when it is mentioned, it's mentioned tangentially as something that somebody else does, one of the bad guys does. And so I think that that's something that really undercuts that. So I know I've, I've rambled on here, but uh, what are your thoughts on that debate between a maneuver and attrition or the absence of, uh, you know, contrary ideas to what we want to do uh, being present in the discussions today? Well, I think my one of my favorite books that I read in graduate school is Craig Cameron's American Samurai. And his argument is that doctrine reflects culture as much as anything. And so he explores how the army fought completely different in the Pacific battles than the Marines. And so maneuver warfare is the the army's cultural preference for war fighting. And it makes sense that that developed out of the context of the Vietnam War, in which arguably, although there's been some revisionist history that argues otherwise, that we were too focused on attrition and body count, and that was not a strategy, um, especially suited for, for that fight. So it makes sense that the that the Army tried to learn the right lessons from Vietnam and embrace more of a, a, war, a different warfighting philosophy. However, I think that that has gone too far, and now we have moved more in from doctrine into dogma. And so my sort of contrarian argument and that's something I've, I've been thinking about, especially in the last couple, month or so, is that, you know, every every service is willing to critique the Air Force for its embrace of strategic bombardment. And historically, I don't think the Air Force still um, embraces strategic bombardment dogmatically, but it did in the past. Mm-hmm. And we're willing to accept that that is dogmatic. And what we're looking for in strategic bombing theory is a shortcut to victory. Yeah, yeah. Now, we all want shortcuts to victory, and it's worth trying them. But... What are you going to do when they don't work? Because more often than not, they don't work because the stakes are too high. I would argue that maneuver warfare is the Army's version of strategic bombardment. It's trying to win on the cheap quickly. That is definitely worth trying, but it does not mean that it is the answer. You know, it's funny you, it's funny you mention that because if you go back and read uh, Robert Satino's trilogy on uh, the Wehrmacht through whatever it is, 1941 through 1945, uh, one of the things that he says in, in the death of the Wehrmacht is he said, I'm looking over at my books, if you can't tell. <laughs> one of the things he says in the death of the Wehrmacht is, you know, the Germans had built this operational approach to war fighting that was front loaded, that sought that decisive knockout blow at the beginning. And uh, I thought it was really funny because uh, he said, you know, the running joke was, what did you do uh, if you tried the Blitzkrieg and the Blitzkrieg didn't work? You tried another Blitzkrieg. <laughs> You know, and so I just I think it's funny because it almost feels like that. It's like, well, you know, we always find an excuse. There's always something, you know, you didn't understand it well enough. You didn't do it well enough. There's this and that that got in the way. And so I suppose there's a question uh, that I have for you. One of the big things that I think about when I think about maneuver is that it's uh, again, it doesn't matter that it's it's your preference or it's what you want to do. There has to be you have to have the components to do maneuver. 
And in many, I think in most cases, what that means, there isn't a universal definition of components that make maneuver happen. It's situational, right? And so it's tied to uh, what I think really is one of the keys is mobility. And that doesn't necessarily mean tanks or Bradleys or something like that. It just means you have an asymmetric movement advantage over the opponent, right? Because if you can move at either a pace or in through terrain that they can't move on, you're going to be able to maneuver in, in a way that they, you know, they probably can't react to. So you have to have components and there's, you know, there's more to it than just that, but that's the big thing. And then there has to be the right conditions. And so a lot of that is physical terrain. You know, the conditions have to be such that you can, you can do the movement to, you know, in many cases get around the opponent. And so again, like I work in uh, downtown Austin and when I look out the window in the big, big building I work in, um that sits well above you know the skyline there in the city i think you know when i when i think about maneuver because these are the things i think about in my spare time is is, is maneuver warfare uh, i think how would you do man- that's true that wasn't even a joke yeah that is true um and so when i sit there and look out the window though, i'm like how do you go about doing maneuver in this place you know what i mean first off it would completely consume a massive amount of force and then when you say that that right there says that you can't do it. It consumes force, right? And if your force is being consumed, you're inherently sucked in and, and you've... <laughs> Go ahead, sorry. I'm rambling. No, I just want to save my, my thought before I lose it. Yeah. I'd rather maneuver not even be a joint function and we just say move. Yep. Because when we call everything maneuver, then it... I mean, I know there's movement and maneuver, but when, when, we, when we call everything sort of maneuver and just put it in there, yeah. it's like we're making everything maneuver. And when you put make everything something, then it also becomes meaningless. Yeah. And so it becomes a kind of check in the box. And that, you know, that was the critique of a lot of the maneuverists writing, mm-hmm. in, you know, in the 1980s. Well, yeah, you have you, you say you do maneuver, but you actually don't. Yeah. Well, that's that's the other thing. I'm glad you brought up the the maneuverists of the 1980s. If you go back and read their their work, um, because again, I'm I, I'm on the side. I'm working on a book, and there's a chapter in there on this on this very discussion. And so I've been doing a lot of reading of source material, and there's nothing greater than that, like early to mid 1980s. You know, we just uh, we're trying to hammer out airland battle, all that stuff that's coming out at that time on maneuver. And so there's some really good um, texts out there from that period. You know they're good for for gathering support and, and and you know getting people to say yeah this this sounds like a good idea but really again going back to the idea of components and conditions uh, they lack any kind of intellectual rigor and so when you dig into the footnotes because I'm I, I I like saying where did you get this you know let me see your footnote and I look at the footnote and I find it's like interview a German general from 1952. You kind of you you lose me pretty quick, you know what I mean? Because you're just saying, well, it's it's this because I say it's this, and my footnote says it's something some German general told me, or something some German general told Liddell Hart when Liddell Hart was trying to uh, reinvigorate their not their careers, but their their legacies. Yeah, yeah, and make their tie his his ideas to their performance and say, look, it was terrific. And so that's part of the problem, I think, too. And I'm not going to name any names. but when you go back and look at a lot of these key documents from that time period, key books, key papers, they, the, the footnotes, if they do exist, are just really, really bad. And there's no source. And so if there's no source, you know, you need to also show me, like, what's what's the theory that makes this thing work, you know? And uh, I, I just, I don't know if you've come across that as you've worked on this. Well, I would say that when I, I'll bring up another airport 
force comparison. So then I can then point it out in air power theory and then turn it on its head maybe in, in maneuver theory. Um, Julio Dehay wrote mm-hmm. a very now controversial book, Command of the Air, in which his argument is not just about air superiority, but it's also about the best way to win wars is just make them so horribly painful on civilians that they'll concede and, and the war will be over. Well, a lot of his argument, it's interesting, he's writing after World War I, and he has almost no references to World War I, except to specific contexts that make his point, but he argues a lot by analogy. So he has this... Mm-hmm. There, you know, well, if you're riding on a bicycle and you see five pigeons, what's the best way to kill them? Well, surely not this way. So therefore, my theory <laughs> is right. Well, I can't think of what the title of the book is. It's one of the most well-known maneuver books, but it starts off with this great analogy. It's like I move on to army base and I'm trying to impress my wife because there are ant hills everywhere. Oh, yeah. I keep trying to kill them each day and it won't they won't go away. And finally, I go to the, the store. They give me. Um, ant killer and it kills the queen and that solves the problem and that's his explanation for maneuver warfare but yeah. unfortunately uh we're humans not ants and war is just the stakes are too high for there to be a generally a simple solution because the enemy always gets a vote and you might win the short-term um victory that you want but the conflict the political underpinnings of the conflict have not been resolved and so the conflict will not be resolved to your satisfaction for as long as you would like. Yeah, that book you're referring to, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's The Art of Maneuver by uh, Robert Leonard. And uh, Thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah. And what's interesting about that, and I'm going to try and get him on, but he's kind of uh, reluctant to, to do a lot of a lot of things uh, these days. But um, I, I talked to him a few months ago uh, at a thing we were both at in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And it was terrific because Bob Leonard's one of the those, those key theorists that I'm just like, man, this guy's terrific. Anyhow, it was one of those books, that and Fighting by Minutes, those two books, and then actually his Principles of War for the Information Age, they're, they're phenomenal. Um, and they were really what got me going on, me personally, to try and understand the theory behind maneuver warfare. And it was all—it <laughs> was almost like, I'm not going to go that direction, um, but it was one of those moments when you realize that the dogma that you've been brought up to, uh, to, to, to love and cherish isn't actually true. And you have this moment of realization where you're like, I don't believe this anymore. That book got me going on that path of, I'm going to try and learn everything I can about this. And then I learned maybe too much to where I realized, oh yeah, uh, there's a lot of ho- <laughs> there's a lot of holes in this idea. Back to the conversation with him. So he was uh, he was at this thing. We were at this uh, event together, and so I was like, oh man, I'm totally nerding out talking to Bob Leonard. Long story short, he was like, you know, he's, he he said he's not going to rewrite the book, but he said his opinion and his thoughts have changed quite a bit from what was published there. And if you were to write the book today, it would be vastly different. Advantage would be the key thing that he would talk about. And it's not about maneuvers, not the acme of war fighting. It's fighting for advantage, right? Whatever that may be, however that may be. And so when you think about that in context of like, you know, an applied situation, that means it could be any number of things, you know, it could be it could be encircling somebody in a city and just, you know, pounding your way through that or, or, or any number of ways of fighting. And so it's just interesting to talk to him and hear that. And I don't want to put words in his mouth, but again, I'm going to try and potentially get him on here to talk about that. So you mentioned earlier MDO, and I, I wrote this down so I could come back to it. Western militaries across the board are starting to substitute, I think, general thinking, but we'll just call it strategy um for strike and everything has become the strategy of strike and because of that 
you've essentially seeded or not necessarily because, but maybe as a, a reflection of that, you've seeded uh, sending in land forces and everything that we do is, you know, remote, remotely or whatever, you know, land-based fires, air-based fires. Uh, and, and so there's a strategy of strike, this standoff approaches to warfare that seem to be emerging. Um, and I, I think you see it, you could also call it a, a long range stri uh, strike strategy. Uh, as opposed to some sort of holistic uh, approach to war fighting, do you see something comparable happening, or am I just uh, am, am I just crazy? I think that there are. I think that that is happening, and I think there are multiple of reasons for it, and they're they're competing, and so there isn't sort of one reason or thing that we can ascribe to it. Mm -hmm. I would argue that traditionally the history of warfare um, is people wanting to fight further at a distance. Yeah. In, in some ways, because it's psychologically easier, the ancient Greeks kind of bucked that tradition and then embraced the close quarters fight for some reason, which had psychological advantages and also had huge psychological disadvantages. Is that why there's them? so many <laughs> units in the army with a call sign that's got Spartan in it? Brett <laughs> uh, Devereaux, I think, is the person that you can get on the podcast to talk about that. He's done some, All right. um, some, some pieces on that. But yes. And, and again, we see the Greeks the way we want to see them rather than how they actually were. Yeah. Um, I also think that the, the battlefield is just getting bigger. I think John Keegan's, um, oh, I cannot think of any book titles right now, The Face of Battle. Oh, yeah. Uh, does a good job of doing that. If you look at his three case studies, he has those maps. And so he takes Agincourt, he superimposes it on Waterloo, and then on World War One, And you can just see... The, the trajectory of history is fighting battlefields get bigger. And so that's also a long-term trend that's not new. Yeah. I think that there is, in terms of the Army prioritizing long-range fires as their modernization priority, makes sense. But also I can see how it could also be institutionally self-serving to some extent and to uh, make sure it gets to participate in certain fights, even though that may not be the dominant um, domain for that fight, or it may be. We don't know because we don't know what the next fights are going to be. Yeah. Um, however, when we have tight budgets, that obviously is problematic if we're develop spending a lot of money developing redundant tendencies. Yeah. Uh, so I think there, like I said, there are a lot of different reasons for this. I think that it's interesting when you saw the Marines with their uh, concept in some ways, you can see them needing more sort of air power theory, ironically, because it's yeah. a kind of a whack-a-mole now applied to conventional, where, you know, now you're you're just cumulatively, you know, attriting ships, and that becomes the operational objective to um, support the strategic goal. So I think that there's still a strategic goal, and we will, and the Army, you know, it, it should not move its strategy away from what it does best, which is controlling territory, because yes, then it will become, it will by nature go back to sort of that attritional Vietnam model, which also is not a good answer. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that because when I think, and so this is one of the things that gets, uh, gets in my head. So when we talk about long range uh, precision fires and, you know, substituting people for long-range fires, uh, but then we say maneuver. Those two things are not analogous, right? 
And so as we increase the role of long-range precision strike or long-range strike or strike of any kind without our own people on the ground, we're fundamentally re- not reverting because I don't think it's a reversion, but we're fundamentally shifting towards a maneuver approach or a, an attritional approach. And it just, it seems like it's, it's one of those things like you, it's uh you're saying maneuver, but what you're really doing is, is attrition. Cause any kind of strike based strategy, I would, I would assert is attritional, right? You're, you're just trying to kill things. You're not trying to do any kind of bold movement necessarily. And then the same thing, I think, uh, holds true too. Like when we talk about maritime environment, uh, maritime maneuver may be different, um, but as, as somebody with a, a long history and in, uh, in, in a land force, uh, when I think about maritime environments and how you have to get in there and do that and then get on shore, all of that to me says attrition. And so uh, I'm curious if you, if you have similar thoughts or if you think that, uh, you know, there, there is some maneuver in, in the, in the over-reliance, I would say, on long-range fires. Um, I think that if we think about maneuver, what, what I was thinking of when you were talking was we so often think of maneuver as physical movement. Yeah. But that undercuts the whole idea of maneuver warfare, which is really about a mental effect. And so if we could rein in the concept a little bit more to focus on the mental and the moral versus the physical, I think that that would be a more useful way to sort of keep us on track and rein in the term and have it be more useful. Uh, when you talk about long range fires, you're then and a morale effect, you know, it's interesting because again, going back to air power, yeah. that was the original hope that it would have a morale effect um, on civilians. And that has not really proven to be the case except to make them angry. And so then, you know, what what examples of long range fire do we have of really affecting morale in a kind of maneuverist sense? And again, we have some here and there. Uh, a lot of them are are in some ways, though, from like Operation Desert Storm. And you're having you're doing interviews with people um, and officers from the other side. And then those types of sources tend to be somewhat problematic because, you know, oftentimes they're going to tell you um, what you want to hear. So, for example, the the future Air Force did a lot of um, discussions with German officers after the war in nice houses with lots of um, bourbon and other beverages. And you, you can imagine, you know, how those conversations went and what the Germans said to the um, Americans who then had their ideas validated. Right. And we still read quotes from them today, which goes back to your mention of sources. Yeah, that's fair. The uh, So with that, the uh, I think the last thing on this that I'm going to ask you, based off this discussion so far, what is your assessment of the state of military thinking today? Is it in a good place? Is it, uh, you know, is it coming bottom up or good ideas coming to the surface? Or is, is you know, that, that GO with that general officer with 30 years of experience keeping his or her thumb on good ideas and uh, allowing the ideas that uh, that should be coming to the top, uh, not come to the top. I can't comment on the state of the process. Yeah, I think that we are in a really, really bad place, though, as I've already alluded to, that um, multi-domain operations is a light version of maneuver warfare. So we're we're simplifying our ideas, and it just becomes sort of a hashtag. You know, um, make the come up with multiple dilemmas for the enemy is, is kind of the, if you take a shot for every time you read. You forgot um, positions of relative advantage. You got to put that in there too. 
multiple, <laughs> yes. multiple dilemmas, position of relative <laughs> advantage. Yeah. If you say those so, things in any order, you're, you're talking about maneuver and everything else that we say that we do. And so I think that in Ukraine, we've all come to the realization for those of us who didn't before that things like logistics are really important. We've really taken a hard look at our logistics. We've taken a hard look at air defense and its importance. And But we haven't questioned really our ideas and yeah. our assumptions about warfare. And I don't know, you know, this is only an opinion. I don't have evidence to really support it. But yeah. given the fact that supposedly we tried to turn Ukrainians into maneuverists, um, suggests to me that we really need to take a hard look at the fun the fundamental ideas that we believe in and really consider the extent to which they would hold up in a variety of situations. Um, and we have to prepare for the wars that are going to be and not the wars that we want. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and, and it's that whole idea that like, and I've, I've said this several times, the way that you want to fight doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't, you know, the, there's so many factors, the, you know, the enemy, the terrain, time, all these things, policy objectives and whatnot, those all factor into uh, influencing how you're going to fight. And one of the things that I, I did want to say about that, too, when you talk about the uh, the pressure that was applied on the Ukrainians to do more maneuvery things, uh, one of the key components, um, and I, I would be a bad SAMS graduate if I didn't say this, one of the key components that you have to think about when you're doing operational uh, campaigning is operational reach, right? And so you have to you have to think about that the balancing of endurance, protection, and momentum. And so the the bigger point that I'm trying to make here is that force structure is a huge part of this, and you have to have force structure to do maneuver. And to do maneuver, going back to the argument that I was saying earlier about components and conditions, one of the components is force structure that allows for maneuver. And if you don't have a force that can uh, effectively balance endurance, protection, and momentum moving forward over distances, you're not going to be able to do it. And what that means is you can't have small margins on your force structure, right? So, you know, if you have an armored unit and it only has three companies, which is very, very small, if something happens to that unit, it's almost out of the fight as soon as it makes contact with an, uh, with an adversary. You can't do maneuver if you're automatically bogged down once you make contact with an opponent. And so I think there's significant force structure implications that we're not looking at when we think about, okay, is this idea going to be the four of what we do? Yes. Okay. Well, then force structure says, or the dynamics of force interaction say that you have to have actually a a bigger force than what you think you're going to need to do maneuver, not a smaller, lighter force. And so I think that's, uh, that's my last rambling comment on something brilliant you said that I wanted to uh, jump in on. So what other projects are you working on? Or is there anything else out there that you're uh, doing that you'd like to share with the audience? Well, um, I went out to the Hague Center for Strategic Studies a couple of months ago. And I was really bummed that I wasn't invited to, but keep going. And I um, was asked to talk about multi-domain operations. And so I really tried to eat some gelato cleanse my palate mm. and come at it again. And this is really where, you know, I started getting back into the multi-domain operations that the army has put out and really found it had become this, you know, instead of a doctrine the size of Delaware, we have doctrine the size of the great state of Texas. And I felt like the original 
problem that they were seeking to solve had been lost, and now it was trying to be a one-size-fits-all everything um, solution. So that's something that I've been um, working on. I really tried to approach it with an open mind, put all my previous reservations aside, and then come back with it. And I still, I, now I say, well, if you if you have to do multi-domain operations, please scope it more to a narrow operational problem that you need to solve instead of um, everything. All right. So with that, I think uh, I think we we have going back to operational reach terminology here. I think we've culminated um, <laughs> for today. So Heather, just uh, appreciate it a ton. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, it's always a pleasure to listen to you talk. So it was terrific actually getting to talk to you face to face here digitally at least. Uh, so thank you very much for your time and I appreciate it. You're welcome. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.